As Ian said, welcome back. Feels good in here, right? Yeah. I like this room. As you can see, we are going to start a new series. Uh, it's going to be for three weeks, and we're going to look at this amazing, incredible theme that is all throughout the scriptures, the grace of God. Yeah. This is something that, it's just out of this world. It's amazing. It is going to be a wild ride. Um, so please try to be here all three weeks. I promise you it'll be worth it. Okay. Tonight, we're going to look at part one, which is the fact that God is gracious. How many of you know, and there's, we have a quote from a friend of ours, his name is Daniel Savala, that at the center of the universe stands the heart of an innocent child, meaning the center of all reality, the fabric of existence, everything revolves around the heart of an innocent child. Now, some of you tonight might actually believe that. Or you might say you do, but inside here you don't. How many of you believe confidently that God is for you? Yeah. Yeah. That God is totally on your side. That he has never desired anything for you but your highest good. He believes the best about you. He's willing to forgive you at the slightest sign of remorse. He has never desired your pain, but even your pain he has used for good. He is not just for those who love him, but also for his enemies. Do you believe that? It is said about Jesus in the scriptures that he, he came into this world full of grace and truth. Full of grace and full of truth. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking those are two different ideas. That truth is the realism side of Jesus. The let's just be honest side of Jesus, right? Where he just is blunt, he confronts sin, he confronts hypocrisy. And then grace is more the optimistic side of Jesus. Where he forgives the woman caught in adultery, uh, where he holds children and blesses them. And we almost think maybe those two things are going on in, in like a balance, but that's not what the scripture says, right? It says that he was full of both, meaning that him being full of grace is the truest expression of God. Do you realize that? That the grace of God in Jesus Christ is fully true. That's what's being said there. It is, it's not that these two things are in balance, like he was full of grace, and that was true about him. In fact, when Jesus said that he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, that was the truest thing you could say about God's attitude toward us. God's attitude toward the world, the most true statement you could say about it is he came to save it. He did not come to condemn it. Okay? That's really important that we grasp this and we understand who God is as a gracious God. Right? Satan's first attack against humanity was this. It was his sly effort. I'm reading a quote by A.W. Tozer, which I think I have that slide. Satan's first attack upon the human race was his sly effort to destroy Eve's confidence in the kindness of God. Unfortunately for her and for us, he succeeded too well. From that day, men have had a false conception of God, and it is exactly this that is cut out from under them the ground of righteousness and drives them to reckless and destructive living. 
So what are we saying here? We're saying that if you don't really truly believe that God is good and he's on your side and he is, he is totally gracious, if you don't really believe that, if you're not convinced of that, your life will spin out of control. Like, everything hinges on your confidence in his goodness. And Satan's plan is hinging on the same thing, but getting you to lose your confidence in the goodness of God. So he's going to bring up accusations against God. He's going to come up with slander. Like, he's going to say things that are false about God. He's going to twist what God says to make it seem like God is not actually good. That's the whole scheme. That's the whole war that we're in, is do we really have this confidence or not? Can we trust God? And this is going to be the question we spend the next three weeks trying to understand. Can we actually trust God? Do you actually trust God? That's what grace is all about. It really has to do with trust. Tonight, as we attempt to understand this idea about God, we are asking the question, is he really actually good? And we're going to look at what God says about himself, uh, how God has revealed himself in history to other people, and how God has acted in goodness. Like, we're going to look at, okay, is this, is this true? Can we actually say, yes, God is good or not? Let's look at, first of all, where does the idea of God's goodness come from in the world? Like, where do we even get that idea? Because you got to think about something for a second. I'm going to give you guys a couple facts. Okay, these are, these are hard facts. These are not my ideas or my opinions. These are truth. Okay? First of all, mankind is deeply religious. Like, if you look at every people group throughout all history, man is always worshiping something. Okay? Always. Always. All the way back. You could go as far back to ancient man as you want, all the way to present day. Man is always worshiping something. Now, we're not going to get into why that is. That's just a fact, okay? We can all agree on. Secondly, here's another very pertinent fact. Man becomes like what he worships. Man will never rise above the concept that he or she has of God. Okay? No person will ever rise higher than their ideas of God. In fact, the idea that you have of God, who you think of, when you think of God, what comes to mind will actually determine your destiny. If we have low thoughts of God, if we have thoughts about him that are just not true, they will create falsehood in our lives. And you can look at that throughout all history, too. The, the stories of idolatry that took place, you know, the Roman Empire. Even some of Rome's best poets and philosophers were flabbergasted by the moral decay that they witnessed in the Roman Empire near the end of, it, of its reign on earth. And what they were witnessing was people becoming like their idols that they worshipped. Okay? There are gods throughout history that were worshipped in ways that if I described it, it would make your skin crawl. For real. Like, if I, if I got into detail about Molech and some of these gods that were in the land of Canaan around Israel and the child sacrifices, uh, I could look at Pacific Islanders and how they sacrificed people, Aztecs and how they sacrificed, human sacrifice, violence, sexual orgies, things of these nature. Why were they doing that to worship those gods? It's because that's who those gods were. They were the gods of lust. They were, they were vengeful gods, they were vindictive, they were cruel, they held grudges. I mean, they were morally 
inferior, without a doubt, okay? So the idea that God is good had to be a revelation because mankind does not have it within it and within us to conceive of something better than we are, okay? Mankind does not have the ability to comprehend or believe in a God that is actually truly good in and of ourselves. And the fact that we believe in a good God today is because we're riding on the piggyback of much revelation given through the scriptures and throughout history of one God in particular, okay? I'm going to put forth a very radical claim tonight. There's only one God who is fundamentally good, as revealed, okay? Fundamentally, like you could look at his morality, you could look at his ethics, you could look at his actions, and you could objectively observe real true goodness. There's one God. He's revealed as Yahweh to the Jews, and he's revealed even further and more fully in Jesus Christ. Okay? We, when we look at morally upright men and women throughout history, I'm thinking of like Gandhi. You know, Gandhi did some great things for the nation of India. He really did. The, the nonviolent resistance that he practiced was radically different than historically how revolutions take place. But even Gandhi, in his best moments, is still called Christ-like. Because Gandhi is still less and inferior than Christ. What I'm saying tonight is there's no higher thought that you can have about God than Jesus Christ. There's no higher conception, no higher thought could ever arise in the human mind than Jesus Christ. Jesus even said about himself, in comparing himself to others, he said Solomon, who was known as the wisest man that had ever lived on the earth, he said, Solomon had that with him, but one greater than Solomon is standing before you. That's me. He said, Jonah was one of the greatest preachers known in the Old Testament. He led one of the most wicked capital cities of the most evil empire of all time to repentance. The capital of, of Assyria, known as Nineveh, was the whole, the whole city, even the animals repented in this revival, right? And Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is standing before you. One greater, one higher, one that will never be surpassed, Jesus Christ. So we're looking at him tonight. So God, he takes this nation, he takes a group of people, known as Hebrews, out of slavery in Egypt. How many of you have seen The Prince of Egypt? Yeah, yeah great movie. Ten Commandments. Everyone see the ten, that old school Charlton Heston? Yeah, that's a sweet movie. <laughs> right? Got some great special effects. At one point, at one point at the end of the movie, he throw, Moses throws the tablets that he received from God at the golden calf that the Israelites are worshiping and it explodes. Okay. A little dramatic flair scripture. God, so he takes this group of people and he rescues them out of slavery and he is going to teach them who he is. The first thing he does is he deconstructs every idea that they have about God because they've inherited all their ideas about God from the idolatry of Egypt. Egypt had numerous gods. They had Osiris, Isis, they had Anubis. Um, yeah, thank you. You could go on and on. They had a God for the moon, a God for the Nile. The Nile, in fact, itself was worshipped, right? And so they had all these crazy ideas about these gods, and God deconstructs them. 
And then God takes them out and he rescues these people from their slavery. And then he says to them, I am the Lord, your God. I am gracious and compassionate. In fact, that theme, that those exact words will be repeated again and again in the Old Testament. You can look it up. Multiple times, multiple prophets will pick up that same language. I am God. I am gracious and compassionate. I have grace. Right? So this idea that God is gracious in the New Testament only, not true. Okay? From the very beginning, as he's dealing with these people, he tells them, I'm gracious. Now, how, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Because we read the, those passages through our eyes, but think about it through their eyes. Like, if you were in their shoes, and the only idea that you had about God was that he was cruel, that he was hard to please, because they, were, they would have to do all these sacrifices to these different idols to get what they wanted, and it wouldn't go their way a lot of times. Right? So they would, the, the idea that God would be gracious was so foreign to them, they had no concept of it. Totally out of this world. So how is God going to show these people that he really actually is gracious? He's going to teach them like he would lead a child. And in fact, God gives them the law. And, and in, in the New Testament, Paul said the law was like a school teacher. It was like a schoolmaster. Teaching them the ABCs. Leading them to understand God through this, this one particular form of revelation, his laws, which are descriptions of reality, okay? He was also going to teach them through experience. And so you have this group of people, and they're given these laws, and what do they do? They break them. <laughs> they break them. They, they rebel against them. Uh, God repeatedly warns them, and they continue to rebel against his laws. They break them over and over and over and over again. So what does a gracious God do with rebels? God weeps for them, his heart breaks for them, he fights for them, he pleads with them, right? I want to look at just a few examples of this fact that we know God is gracious, one, because God suffers with his people. That's why we know God is in fact gracious, okay? I'm going to look at a few verses. In the book of Isaiah, in the 49th chapter, God is speaking to the Israelites, and they've, at this point in their story, they've faced some hard times. They've, they've come into some, some judgment from God. They've been punished. They've been disciplined. And they're actually accusing God. They're beginning to think, maybe God is not good. And they say to God, you've forsaken us. You've forgotten us. And this is God's response. He says, I have not forgotten you or forsaken you. And he says, can a woman forget her nursing child? And not to have compassion on the son of her womb. He says, surely they may forget, which, no, they're not. But even if they did, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. In Jeremiah, at a much different time period in Israel's history, we read a very similar idea. God says to the people, as if pleading with them to understand, what injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone from me, and have followed idols, and have become idolaters. Do you hear the pain in that? Do you hear, in the tone that God is speaking, you can just, the pain is dripping off those words. How have you left me, God is saying. And then again, in the beginning of Isaiah, we see this. Sons have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Abraham, Joshua, Heschel, 
wrote an amazing book about the prophets. It's called The Prophets. It's an amazing book. You should get it. Okay. <laughs> so, but, this is what he says about Isaiah. He says, this speech that we just read opens the book of Isaiah and which sets the tone for all the utterances of the prophet deals not with the anger of God, but with the sorrow of God. The prophet pleads with us to understand the plight of a father whom his children have abandoned. Wow, let that sink in for a moment. That's the language God is using. That's the language of a God who is gracious and who loves those that have turned against him. They have literally rebelled against him. God is basically the greatest parent of all time. There will never be a better father than him. And yet still they left him. Still they walked away from him. So we see that the, the insanity is not on God's part. It's on Israel's part. How utterly crazy that they left behind him. Right? Some of you have experienced a lot of pain. Did you, I'm, I'm going to talk about some of that for a moment. So have you experienced a lot of pain when your parents were divorced? Okay? There's a fair amount of you in this room. You, you grew up in a home where divorce took place sometime in your childhood. How many of you know in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, God too got a divorce? He literally says, I wrote to Israel a certificate of divorce. Okay? So God knows that pain. God understands the pain of homelessness. I'm not sure any of you have experienced that. Maybe some of you have. You think about a homeless person, that's a very painful experience to endure. When God decided to place his presence within the people of Israel, when they were obliterated by their sin, and when they lost their way, really, and there was no more center of worship, Jerusalem was destroyed. In a sense, it was as if God experienced homelessness. Right? God has experienced betrayal. How many of you experienced betrayal? Yes. God experienced it. He, he has. He's felt that. How many of you experienced having your name uh, tarnished or your reputation destroyed even though you were innocent? God certainly experienced that as well. Here's another, maybe possibly one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It says in John, the Gospel of John, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. Basically, he came to his people, his own people, that he had worked with and wrestled for and fought for for, for hundreds and thousands of years. These people, he, he, he was fighting on their behalf, and he came to them, and they did not recognize God when he was standing in front of them. When he was literally face to face with them, they didn't recognize him. They had no idea who he was. How in the world does that happen? And the worst culprits were the people who should have known the best. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, right? When they saw Jesus, they thought, we got to kill this guy. That's all they could think to do with him. we got to get rid of him. How could they come to that point? How, does, how do people who are God's people err so wide of the truth? Even when God is standing right in front of them, they don't even see him. They don't even recognize him. How does that even happen? Okay, we need to understand something. Very important. This is a critical theme in Scripture. The letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Okay? Remember how I said God gave them the laws to teach them? Every law has two components to it. It has the letter, the written law, the, the actual thing that's written down. Like, thou shalt not bear false witness, or thou shalt rest on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. Right? That's the literal, written, legal law. 
But every law has an intention behind it, a reason why God gave that law, which we could call the spirit of the law. Now the Pharisees made this great mistake. This, their great error was that they did not understand God's motivation behind his laws because they did not truly fundamentally know God. So that when Jesus and his disciples were picking heads of grain, they broke the Sabbath according to the rules of the Pharisees. According to the letter of the law, they violated that commandment. And the Pharisees got after them. They said, how come your disciples eat the picked grain with their bare hands on the Sabbath? Because in that culture in Israel, they were so worried about disobeying the letter of the law, they had forgotten the spirit behind it. So that Jesus gives this apology or this explanation for why they broke the Sabbath. He says that man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. That's the spirit of the law. That means that God made that law for man's good. Not to box us in, not to be this obnoxious thing that had become. They had made it so impractical to observe and follow that law when they forgot the spirit behind it, that it was obnoxious to live in their culture. How many of you know that God is easy to live with? Yeah. Do you believe that? Like God is actually easy to get along with? Yeah. Not to the Pharisees. If you were in that culture, you thought, man, God is hard to get along with. He's fault-finding. He's exacting. He's watching every move I make, and if I slip up, he's going to be there to get me. That was the culture that they lived in because they forgot. They didn't know the spirit of the law. But Jesus came and he, he affirmed this thing, that the spirit of the law is greater than the letter of the law. That the letter of the law may actually be broken in keeping with the spirit of the law. And when he did that, he affirmed that God is gracious. Okay, This is huge. This has huge implications for us. The spirit of the law is so much superior to the letter of the law that, in fact, in the scriptures it says, the soul that sins shall die. That's the letter of the law. That's no getting around that. If you sin, you, your, your soul will die. But the spirit of the law says the soul that has sinned may yet live. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's the way out of the law. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. Like, how do we get around the law, which is... Binding, which, you know, it's a lie. It's not advice. It's not God giving us uh, good instruction. It's like, it, it's a hard and fast rule. But there's a way around it, and that is through the spirit of the law. In fact, forgiveness is only possible in the spirit of the law. And do you know what the spirit of the law is? Love. Love is the spirit of the law. Every command is given by God for love. And he says, here's a description of how to love. But he's not caught up in the details. So that, as A.W. Tozer says, fellowship with God is delightful beyond all telling. He communes with his redeemed ones in an easy, uninhibited fellowship that is restful and healing to the soul. He is not sensitive, nor selfish, nor temperamental. What he is today, we shall find him tomorrow, and the next day, and the next year. He is not hard to please, though he may be hard to satisfy. He expects of us only what he has himself first supplied. He is quick to mark every simple effort to please him. 
and just as quick to overlook imperfections when he sees what we meant to do when we were trying to do his will. He loves us for ourselves and values our love more than galaxies of newly created worlds. I, I have not found a better description of God's grace than that. Do you believe that tonight? That God's like that. You see, because if we, if we have a low view of God and we, we don't really think he's gracious, we're going to live in this cramped, scared, you know, fearful life. We're going to be hemmed in, worried that we're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. It is good news, guys. God is about the spirit of the law and not the letter. It is absolutely good news. Praise God that he's like that. That's the kind of God I want to follow and worship. The God who is about keeping the spirit. And that spirit is what leads us to obey him. And we're going to look at that next week. How do we come into this grace that God has? But right now I'm just looking at God and I'm just in awe of him that he is so gracious. He will overlook fault. He can overlook imperfection. He can overlook mistakes. He's not fault-finding. Praise God. He is totally gracious. You see, in, the, in those passages I quoted to you about the prophets, when they were talking about God, do you remember how God describes the rebellion of the people? Right? He says, you were like a child to me that's gone away. Or in another passage, you were like a bride. I remember the times that we had together, God says. I remember we had good times. And those good times actually make his pain worse in their current disobedience. The memories that God has. Right? God actually remembers. And he remembers the times that he had with Israel when they faithfully were led by him. Right? But in every instance, he's using relational language. He's not saying, you guys broke my laws. You violated the commandments. He's fundamentally saying, you broke the relationship. And that's why I'm sorrowful. Because the relationship has been severed. Right? Not because you violated my commands. That, I, that I'm so uptight about, that's not God at all. Praise God, that's not who he is. The Pharisees, you see, they did not understand the grace of God. They understood retribution and wrath, for sure. They understood judgment. Hebrews has this fascinating verse. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it says, speaking about the new covenant, that we've come in the new covenant, we've come to Jesus, and he sprinkled us with his blood. And his blood speaks a better word than Abel. Okay, I'm going to help you understand this. This verse, if you understand it, you guys are never going to forget this. Okay, Abel, if, who of you remember who Abel is? First man to be murdered in the world. So he is the first innocent blood that was shed. And Abel's blood represents every innocent blood that's been shed since then. Innocent blood cries out one thing, avenge me. We get that, right? We, we recurl inside. When someone innocent has been killed, we're like, get that guy. Get the guy that did that. Get the person back. Take their, take their life. You know, we, we almost have this instinctive cry as well that echoes that cry. That's the only thing Abel's blood can say is, avenge me. But in Hebrews, it's saying Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. Why? Because Jesus' blood doesn't say, avenge me on my enemies. It says, forgive them. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness. 
Jesus is more honored by his murderers repenting and coming back into relationship with him than them getting what they deserve. He is more honored by that. His blood, his life, the sacrifice he gave is only really honored by people coming back to him. And so the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's not crying out for vengeance, not crying out for, for vindication. You see, God's dealt with his bitterness. There's no bitterness. None at all. It takes an incredible amount of courage to forgive your enemies. Right? But that's exactly what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. One of the first things he did is he preached through his apostle Peter to the very men and women who he cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter tells him, this God whom you crucified, this man, Jesus, whom you crucified, God has now made both Lord and Savior, or Lord and Christ. Okay? So we see, thirdly, fundamentally, why God is gracious is because he is a God who saves. This man, Jesus, the Savior, is now Lord. Exalted above all exaltation, above all principalities, above all powers, it says in the scripture, above every authority, Christ is seated above it all. Now, it's one thing to forgive people when you have really no power to do anything to get back at them. But what about if you have power to get back? What about if you have the power to get revenge? It's a, it's a, it's a more significant act of forgiveness if you have the power to get revenge, right? Think about God, who holds all power and has actually the right to execute wrath on those who wronged him. What does he do? Courageously gives grace. Mm -hmm. That's courage, my friends. That's courage. That's boldness. You see, grace is not some weak thing. Grace actually triumphed over all evil, over hard-heartedness, over wicked men. Grace wins. And that's why I said at the beginning that seated at the center of the universe is the heart of an innocent child. From the moment that Jesus opened his tiny baby eyes until the moment he closed them on the cross, he was innocent. He, he asked his enemies, which of you convicts me of sin? To which there was no reply. Jesus said a lot of very... Things that, like, honestly would make a person crazy if they said them. But no one accused him of being fanatical. No one accused him of being crazy or out of his mind. Except, sorry, I'll back that up. They actually did. <laughs> no one, however, accused him of being arrogant. Okay, no one accused Jesus of being arrogant or proud. So for a man like that to say that I've come from the Father and I'm returning back to him, that's something altogether different, right? If he is truly humble in saying that, that gets our attention. Lastly tonight, I want to just look at the fact that Jesus, Jesus represents the grace of God through his atonement. Okay. Let's look at the atonement reverently. Let's look at the atonement. If God had not provided the atonement, let's imagine God did not have Jesus crucified on the cross. If that was not carried out, the universe was at risk of thinking that God was not fundamentally merciful. 
Like, if there was no atonement given, we would understand the justice of God. We would understand that from his punishment. Like, if he took out his punishment on every sinner throughout history and he just, everyone was all together just destroyed, there would be understanding, yes, God is justice. God is just. But there would be no understanding of his mercy or his love. And so to prevent his mercy and love being eclipsed or overridden by any other attribute, he gave his definitive statement of who he is in the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus laying down his life is the greatest revelation that will ever be given for the rest of eternity of who God is. And that revelation is God is gracious. That's the revelation. It was actually in God's best interest, not just ours, that he performed this awful task of being crucified. It was God's best interest to do that, to forever secure our confidence. So, Jessamine, you can come back up. Are we, tonight, are we confident that God really is good? Are we confident? Or is there lingering doubt in your heart? I want you to look at the things that we've talked about tonight. The facts, the truth, the reality. That God has revealed himself as a God who is good. And when I say he's good, it's not just because he's God. Right? Some people assume that. I'm, I'm calling God good because whatever he does, it must be good since he's God. No, I'm saying God is good because there's real goodness and it's, it's intrinsically good. And God is that. And when we begin to grasp that, that God is intrinsically good, he's fundamentally good. Like he's, he's good because he chooses to be good. Our hearts will be confident in that. And our worship will rise as we elevate that idea of God. Okay? So tonight we're going to sing Amazing Grace together. And I want you to, to focus on the graciousness of God and focus your minds and your hearts. Set your affection on him as a God who is gracious and for you.